This talk is given by Vanessa Zvise Goddard, a writer and lay Zen teacher based in New York City. This talk, like all of Zvise's talks, is offered freely. If you'd like to make a donation, find out more about Zvise's teachings, or sign up for her newsletter, please visit her website at vanessasvisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. May the merits of these teachings benefit all beings. And may my words help and not harm. May they clarify, not confuse. May they ultimately self-liberate, leaving no traces of me. All right, hello everyone, welcome. Welcome especially to those of you who are joining us for the first time. It's so good to practice with you and to be in community. Thank you for being here. So most of you know, perhaps all of you know, if you get the newsletter, we've been making our way through the eight realizations of great beings. And so today I'm speaking about the second realization which is the awareness that more desire brings more suffering. And then the commentary for that says, all hardships in daily life arise from greed and desire. Those with little desire and ambition are able to relax their body and mind free from entanglement. And just a moment ago, as I was standing just over here, and um, feeling this, I was feeling that moment of desire, the moment in which I really want something and what that experience is in my body and mind. It, it, it just came up quite spontaneously, actually. And then I felt what happens when I'm able to release and how that feels in my body and mind, right? So when, when we hear this phrase, those with little desire and ambition are able to relax their body and mind free from entanglement. That's what it feels like to me. And, and relaxation perhaps is not the best term. Um, I guess I experience it as a release as a kind of as a letting go, certainly, as a kind of surrender, which, as we've spoken many times before, is really based on trust. Now, Dogen, Master Dogen, in his last teaching, uh, recorded a slightly different version of these eight realizations in his fascicle Hachi Dainingaku. Eight Awarenesses of Enlightened Beings or Great Beings, or Eight Awakenings. And um, in it, he's really just quoting the Buddha. He doesn't actually add his own commentary, but I can't find the source for the Buddha's words other than this sutra that we're using. And so I don't know if it was Dogen himself, because the way that these are framed in his version is affirming instead of a renunciant, you could say. It's, it's, it's saying what you want to cultivate, what you want to practice instead of what you want to refrain from. 
And maybe that was him. Because if you think about the precepts, certainly the way that we uh, have learned that most of us in the mountains and rivers order, um, have, they have that affirmative side as well. So the original precepts are stating what you should renounce. Do not kill, do not steal, do not lie, do not misuse sexuality, etc. Whereas the, the Kyoju Kaimon, which has Dogen's commentary, has also the affirming side. Affirm life, do not kill. Be giving, do not steal. So I don't know if this was Dogen himself or if he really is quoting a, a, a sutra from the Buddha, which I just can't find. But I think regardless, it is good to have both sides, right? So this is what I should refrain from doing. This is what I should actively cultivate. And so in this case, this realization in particular, the original wording is pointing to the danger of desire. While Dogen's version is, is really highlighting the skillfulness and I would say the realism of having few desires. And so quoting the Buddha, he says, the Buddha said, friends, know that people who have many desires intensely seek fame and gain. And here, think of fame and gain, the whole range of that, right? So those moments when we want recognition of some sort. So it's not just that you want to be you know, famous or, or rich necessarily, but th those moments where, where there is a sense of needing yourself to be recognized. Therefore, they suffer a great deal. Those who have few desires do not seek fame and gain and are free from them. So they are without such troubles. Having few desires is itself worthwhile. It is even more so as it creates various merits. Those who have few desires need not flatter to gain others' favor. Those who have few desires are not compelled by their sense organs. They have a serene mind and do not worry because they are satisfied with what they have and do not have a sense of lack. Those who have few desires experience nirvana. This is called few desires. And I just want to say here, you know, that sometimes the way these are phrased, they sound so absolute, right? That, that there's, there's a person that is, it sounds like it's so, so complete, the state that they're in, where they don't have desires. And so their mind is always serene and they don't feel a sense of lack and therefore they experience nirvana. And I'm sure somewhere in the world, there are people like this. I like to think the, of this in a, in a um, much more personal, more immediate way as all of these moments in which I am able to release a desire. The moment in which I'm able to approach my life from a sense of trust and abundance instead of a sense of lack. And at least for me, this is a constant practice. Right? I haven't yet arrived at a place where I my mind is always serene by any means. And now the third realization, which we'll cover next week, 
actually speaks about having few desires. And so I suspect that as the sutra traveled right through China to Vietnam, Korea, Japan, that its content shifted a bit, right? Some points were highlighted, some others were left out. But the message is, is clear, have few desires and you'll be happier. And you know, I had seen when I was working on the, the, the Dogen version, I gave a series of talks on this. I had seen a cartoon in the New Yorker where a thief is standing in a room with all the, the bounty strewn around him. You know, there's just like bags of things and you know, just his bounty. And he's, he's holding to his chest uh, a boombox. He's like cradling it, kind of like a baby. And he's asking himself, do I need this? Does it spark joy? <laughs> that is a good question. Do I need this? Does it spark joy? And you know, we're practitioners. So we already know desire causes suffering. We already know desire is the root of suffering. Hopefully we also know that we can't not have desires. That as long as we live, we will want. And so I did want to focus on, the, on, on desire, but on its skillful side. The side that is affirming and joyful. The side that promises to give us a fulfillment that ultimately we are all seeking. That sense of satisfaction and perhaps even a serene mind. And so let me tell you a story. There's a man living in the Balinese jungle and he wakes up every morning as the sun is rising. And he sits on the ground uh, right in front of his hut, his back resting against the wall of his hut to watch the dawn. And every morning, a young woman who's the wife of the local magician of whom this man is a guest, comes to deliver a bowl of fresh fruit. But the man notices that on the first day that she comes, you know, she comes with a bowl of fruit and she also comes with a tray. She holds it on her shoulder with these tiny boat shaped platters that have, um, they're woven out of palm fronds and they have a mound of rice in each. And, you know, the first day or two, the man doesn't say anything. He just watches, you know, the woman delivers a fruit to him. And then she goes off around the compound where they're living and sets down a platter, one of these little boats on each corner of the compound. And then after a while, you know, curiosity gets the best of him. And so he asks her, you know, what, what are these for? And she says, well, they're for the household spirits. And she disappears around the corner just as she did before. And so then he starts to follow her. And she sees how she very carefully lays down, you know, each of the boats and each of the, the corners of the various buildings of the compound. And then when he gets back to his hut, he looks at the boats and realizes they're empty. The rice is gone. And so another day he gets a little bit closer and he notices something strange. The rice is actually moving. So he gets a little closer still 
and he sees that there's a line of ants patiently climbing up the side of the boat and, and they're wrangling with each grain of rice. And so, and, you know, perhaps one of them is like, picks up a grain of rice and tries to push it or they start to pull it. Often, you know, it stumbles and it falls on his back and now the rice is on top of it and it just lays there until another ant comes and like, helps it along. And so this is no easy feat. I mean, they spend hours, but you know ants, I mean, they're very collaborative. And so together they manage, you know, grain by grain to cart off the rice in each one of these little boats up off to their anthill. And he realizes these were the offerings for the household spirits. And he realizes in a practical sense, that this keeps the ant colonies occupied, right? So they won't get into the compound's pantry, they won't get into the kitchen. But then he thinks a little further and he realizes, but the, these offerings do keep them satisfied. Because at first he's like, are these the household spirits? I mean, is the woman just saying that? Or are the ants actually the household spirits? And in one sense, he realizes it doesn't matter but they are being satisfied. Remember, right, in the practice of Oriyoki, there's always that, that offering given to the various spirits to satisfy them. And this reminded me, somewhat incongruously, but it reminded me of a family I once read about who the week, six days out of the week, they have, you know, three proper balanced meals at the right time. They all get together, they eat together, they have healthy snacks, they have fresh food, you know, they take care of themselves. And one day a week, and I don't remember what it was called. They had a name for it. I don't remember what it was. But one day a week, everyone in the family can eat whatever they want, kids and parents. So they can get up and have ice cream for breakfast and pizza for dessert and a bowl of cereal for dinner, if they want. I sometimes eat a bowl of cereal as dessert or for dinner. It's like the teenage boy in me. <laughs> and this, so one day, let's call it, I mean, I called it no holds barred. And not surprisingly, this keeps everyone happy and satisfied. And you would think that they would just go crazy. And the kids would just, you know, eat ice cream until they're sick and stuff but they don't, they don't. There's something about that container. They know that is their day. They eat whatever they want until they're satisfied. An offering to their inner spirits, their inner gods. And this, this story of the ants is in a, in a book called The Spell of the Sensuous by David Abrams. And it's not a new book. I mean, it came out in the 90s. Um, but as I, as I was writing this talk, I thought about it. And interestingly, in one of those uh, coincidences, that is not a coincidence at all, I got a, a newsletter yesterday morning from another teacher, a Buddhist teacher. And the, the headline said, are you overstimulated, but under-sensualized? And her um, argument is that 
as we've talked about many times before, most of us live from here up most of the time, most of our lives, even within the Dharma, you know, grappling, working with concepts. And so she was saying how so much of her own practice and her own teaching is really about connecting, connecting to the body and connecting to the senses. Because the fact is we live in a sensuous world. It's the only way that we can experience it, through the senses. And that is why denial only goes so far. Because in a sense, it's a denial of reality. I mean, it's a denial of the world and of ourselves who are part of that world. And so I think that the key to being satisfied, the key to fulfillment is really finding the, the optimal way to relate to the world through our senses. And by optimal, I don't mean just, you know, running after pleasure, but, but engaging, engaging with each moment of experience so fully that whether it's pleasurable or not becomes secondary because the actual fulfillment comes from the engagement. Nothing left out. No holds barred. And so, you know, so much of this is um, remembering, remember that, that the, the, the definition of, of sati, of remembering, of bringing together, bringing together the, the, the disparate parts of ourselves to fully be present, in this case, with each sensation, which can be difficult, especially if we've experienced trauma. In that case, the sensuous becomes dangerous. And so you need to work with it differently. You need to ease yourself into it. But, you know, let me offer another teaching that might be relevant. I've been revisiting the, the Lojong slogans of Atisha, it's 59 slogans, mind training phrases. And Atisha was most likely a Bengali monk and teacher, scholar, that develop, who developed these to train the mind. And let me add, to train the body, to train the heart. And at a certain point, he was asked to teach in Tibet, and he was told that Tibetans were very easygoing. And so he, instead of being pleased, he became worried that he wouldn't have enough stuff to work with, <laughs> to train his mind with. That would be a nice problem to have, right? <laughs> Being concerned, oh, I don't have enough negativity or enough challenges to train my mind with. And then he got there and he realized he didn't have to worry. There was plenty. There was plenty to work with. But these slogans are very practical. They're very doable and demanding. And demanding. They do make you stretch. And the 39th slogan says, all activities should be done with one intention. All activities should be done with one intention. And then as you get into it, as you read some of the commentary, you realize that that intention is benevolence. And so if you take that into this practice of 
having few desires. You realize, you know, you can offer them up with the intent that they be of benefit to yourself and to others. Right? So when I, when I sip my tea, when I eat a meal, when I enjoy a book, I go for a walk, part of that fulfillment comes from the knowledge, if I can have it present, that I am doing these things with others. We say that, we chant that as part of the Orioki chant, I eat this food with everyone. And how is that so? And so even if I'm struggling with my want, if I'm struggling with feelings of lack, I can offer that struggle. I think this is really important, this mind of offering. We know gratitude and we know the, the, the effect that that has. And so this is, I, I think it, 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 goes, it goes with it, this mind of offering both our, our abundance and our sense of lack to offer the difficulty and to offer the joy. And now the important thing is that this intent, this intent for benevolence is suffused with awareness and, gent and gentleness. Right? It's not demanding, it's not anxious, it's not fearful, it's not, it doesn't push through. It stands on our goodness and on our abundance and, our, and, and on our unquenchable desire to thrive. Because behind every desire is the desire to be okay. And not just to be okay, but to thrive. And so here's a poem called Flirtation by Rita Dove. Dove. After all, there's no need to say anything at first. An orange peeled and quartered, flares like a tulip on a Wedgwood plate. Anything can happen. Outside, the sun has rolled up her rugs and night strewn salt across the sky. My heart is humming a tune I haven't heard in years. Quiet's cool flesh, let's sniff and eat it. There are ways to make of the moment a topiary so the pleasures in walking through. For more talks, to get more information about Zvise's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazvisegoddard.org.